0: I haven't ministered here since I came back from the Philippines, so a couple people wanted me to uh, share something about my trip to the Philippines, and I don't want to share a whole lot, otherwise I won't have time for my message, but, um, uh, so anyway, um, I can tell you one or two things, Um, so anyway, uh, the first few days we were there, we had a missions conference, And uh, we had about 60 young people. And uh, so anyway, a year or two ago, I'm not exactly sure the exact time frame, but a year or two ago, uh, the church had a a missions offering. And one sister, her name's Rhea, she brought her jar of coins that she had been saving since she was a little kid and put that in the offering. And the pastor was so uh, touched by that that they never cashed it. They just put it uh, on on one of the desks in their office and, and just kept it as a reminder that you know, uh, we're a missions-minded church. And uh, so anyway, uh, at this missions conference, uh, Pastor Paul was sharing that he was looking for volunteers. There's a uh, a Christian couple that's starting a, a school in um, Cambodia. And they're looking for teachers that are Christians to go and teach English. And, um, you know, it's a job. You get room and board, and uh, 500 a month is what I heard. And that's nice wage for somebody that lives in Cambodia, you know. And so um, at this missions conference, Paul is sharing... Um, the, um, the opportunity, hey, you can be a missionary in Cambodia, uh, this, the brother and sister, they starting in a the school, they're looking for, they're looking for like a dozen or 15 teachers, and they want Christians. Well, anyway, um, it was Raya, this girl who had given her, uh, life-saving, so to speak, in coins, you know, uh. To missions, who came forward and and volunteered, and so that was that was a real blessing. We now have three sisters, Raya and Shell, and Julianne, who uh, are going to be going to Cambodia. And uh, so then you want to hear a story that's non-missions story. So, so I had you know I was in the Philippines for three weeks and uh, had one opportunity to go swimming in the ocean. One opportunity. And I, I told the pastor, uh, if we're going to do it, we're doing it at 5 in the morning because I can't handle the, the, the heat of the sun, you know, because the sun is really bright in the Philippines because it's right overhead. And uh, so we got up at 5 and, and uh, went down to, the, uh, down to the beach, about six or seven of us, something like that. And, um, boy, as soon as we hit the beach, I was in the water and uh, walked out a long, long ways before I was, you know, up to here and started swimming around. And and uh, I was in the water before anybody else. And it was just beautiful. You can't believe this water. It, there was not one little touch of cold in that water. And it wasn't hot either. It was just like, it was just like, I don't know. It was amazing water. And uh, so anyway, I'm just out there swimming and having a good time. And I'm not a strong swimmer, so I just kind of swim a little bit and rest a little bit. And so anyway, Pastor Nilo's starting to come into the water. And he's maybe this deep in the water. And he gets stung by a jellyfish. And he's hurting. He's hurting. I mean, he's hurting. And uh, so the other pastor, um, Pastor Paul, says, Bob, be careful, there's a jellyfish in the water. So I'm just like, I'm just kind of like oblivious, you know. I'm having a good time swimming. (laughs) Okay, there's a jellyfish in the water, uh, you know, and I can see that Pastor Nilo's hurting. And so there's four or five brothers, and they're all trying to figure out where is this jellyfish because they don't want to, you know, they want to get rid of it. So they're all searching for the jellyfish. i'm further out in the water i'm just I'm just swimming, having a good time. They're maybe half the distance I am in the water. They're looking for this jellyfish and uh, half hour goes by. no jellyfish, and we're just having a good time. The sun's coming up and uh about about forty five minutes into the end of the thing, they saw the jellyfish, and a brother. Uh, went up and grabbed it, if you grab the top uh you know you 're not stung because the stingers are down in the in the arms or whatever they're called, so he picked up this jellyfish and uh we had it for breakfast. no kidding and so we got back we got back to the pastor 's house and one of the young one of the young kids has got the jellyfish on a on a board out outside the house and and he 's cutting it up into little little squares, you know, probably really like uh you know those little sugar cube size squares you know, and it 's completely colorless, and uh, you know they threw the arms away they 're just cutting up the body, and uh, the pastor got stung he wouldn 't need any of it but they, they mixed it in with some salad greens that they got out of their garden, and it was pretty tasty. They had some, it was like a, uh, a vinegar type of uh, uh, dressing, you know, and uh, so anyway, that's my story, okay, my swimming story. I'm glad I wasn't the one that was uh, stunned. Anyway, Pastor Nilo's fine, and it was his first time to that island, Palawan, and uh, it's amazing. You can live in, in the Philippines all your life. There's 300-some inhabited islands. You, you can... Uh, there's a lot of people in the Philippines that have been to less islands than I have in the Philippines because um, you can spend your whole lifetime trying to visit all 300 islands. So, anyway. Hey, I want to teach... Um, um, this is called Sugar-Coated Christianity. And that's a... Uh, Expression that I made up. I, I didn't find this in a book or anything. Sugar coated Christianity. So, um, so fasten your seatbelts. And, uh, this might sound a little, um, uh, uh, like, what's that got to do with me? Um, so just hang in there, okay? And this is a topic that, uh, is really kind of difficult to to cover adequately in one short message. Uh, so I'm just going to hit some highlights here. Okay, so to sugarcoat something, I don't know if you ever heard that expression, but we used to use it when I was a kid. To sugarcoat something is to make it superficially attractive or acceptable. So a sugarcoated... Christianity is a a Christianity that is watered down to make it acceptable to non-Christians and uh, to make it attractive. And uh, so uh, that's a that's a tendency that we all have to sugarcoat the the gospel. To uh, make it less than what it is, so that we can uh, present it uh, to people that don't really want to repent of their sins and embrace the gospel, um, embrace Jesus as their Lord, not just their Savior. And so you get the idea, okay? So um, this is something Christians have been doing for centuries, I mean, this goes way back. This isn't a phenomena of just the uh, uh, the Laodicean church, the laid back church that's a kind of lukewarm. This is this is something that's been going on for centuries, and um, it takes sometimes great courage to uh, break out of that and um, to speak the truth in love without any mixture, without any uh, sugar-coating on it. Amen? And so, um, so um, I want to uh, read an article, excerpts from this article. There was a Supreme Court decision this past week where they... Uh, they allowed this peace cross in Maryland to stand. I don't know if you ever heard about this, but uh, there's uh, been atheists that been wanting to take this. It's like 40 feet tall, and it's on public property. So um, the atheists will say, well, you know, you're promoting religion on, on public property. That's an improper uh, situation. And the Supreme Court said, no, the cross can stand. But they didn't uh, say that it could stand because it's a cross. And so I want to, um, they said it could stand for watered-down reasons. And so I want to um, read excerpts from this article. Um, it's written by a guy named... Uh, Steve uh, Waldman, who wrote a book called Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. So this guy's kind of, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, relevant. And maybe you're wondering, well, what's that got to do with me? So just hang in there, okay? So I want to take some time and read a little bit about, uh, it's called the Peace Cross. So the the headline here is the Supreme Court's Peace Cross case demonstrates the fine art of pretending religious symbols aren't religious. And so um, let's, uh, let's dig in here a little bit. I'll just try to read some of this without commenting too much and then comment later. We'll see how far I can do before I can do that, because I like to interrupt and comment over and over and over again. But uh, I think this guy's the best comment. So uh, the Supreme Court on Thursday, so that must have been a week ago, the Supreme Court on Thursday ruled that a large cross erected as a memorial to the dead uh, may continue to stand on public land in Maryland because it has many secular purposes. In other words, the real verdict on the Peace Cross case is, be careful what you wish for. This was a Pyrrhic victory because the case follows a long, sad tradition in church-state cases, pretending that religious symbols aren't primarily religious to keep them from being bounced by the court. The court's 3-2 ruling reversed a lower court that said the cross was an unconstitutional endorsement of religion. Uh, Justice Alito, not Aletha, Justice Alito wrote that while the cross is undoubtedly a Christian symbol, it also has many powerful secular purposes, including historical landmark and a place for the community to gather and honor veterans. Not a single word of religious content appears anywhere on the monument, and therefore it could be deemed a secular symbol. That's right, as the author saying, A giant cross symbolizing the crucifixion of Jesus is a secular symbol. This isn't the first time that this has happened. To pass judicial scrutiny, advocates of having religious symbols or texts in public spaces have long attempted to argue that these monuments or books have mostly secular purposes. Now, this is Christians that do this. That's the point that I'm trying to make today. In the second half of the 19th century, so this goes back a ways. When Catholics resisted Protestant efforts to have the King James Bible taught in public schools, Protestants responded by arguing that the Bible was literature, not religion. Bible passages ought to be taught not as the words that fell from the second person of the Godhead but as a beautiful specimen of English composition. So Christians sugarcoat the cross, the gospel, to try to make it acceptable in the larger society. This has been going on like I said, for centuries. Okay, here's another example. I'm not going to read that one. Okay. Time and again, those arguing for more religion in the public square have said the symbols or books or crosses have little religious meaning. It's as if judges and advocates enter into a mutual pact of self-delusion to preserve these religious symbols. Creshes aren't religious and neither is the Bible and neither is the cross. Even the Supreme Court's Peace Cross ruling dabbled with such reasoning. Even if the original purpose of a monument was infused with religion, the community was now preserving it for the sake of their historical significance or their place in the common cultural heritage. In other words, the passage of time has sufficiently de-Christianized the cross and made it acceptable. This approach has two problems. First, it invites religious leaders to deceive themselves and the public. Yeah. The approach of cutely... Sneaking in religion through the secular back door strips symbols of their spiritual meaning. At the same time that religious leaders want Americans to rever their sacred texts more seriously, they cheerfully inform judges that these writings should be taken, shouldn't be taken too seriously. What's the point of getting people to read the Bible if you have to declare in effect that it's not a revelation from God? Does Christianity really benefit from the argument that the cross has nothing to do with Christ's sacrifice? It seems to me that secularism, not religious freedom, is advanced by the notion that religious symbols are fine as long as we pretend they're not religious. So that's... That's the uh, Supreme Court allowing this cross to stand because it's not really a religious symbol. Pretty scary, huh? But it's Christians that promote this. So, that's a situation. Okay, now, the U.S. Constitution supposedly guarantees religious freedom. Uh, it says in the us Constitution congress shall not shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. so it 's called the establishment clause the the u s government shall not establish a religion that every person in America has to belong to. That's what that means. But uh, people that want to get rid of religious freedom in America misquote this, and they say that the Constitution promotes the separation of church and state which is a phrase that is not in the Constitution. I just read you what is in the Constitution. So, um, and we keep hearing the separation of church and state. Even Christians uh, fall for the false uh, narrative that in America there's a separation of church and state. That's not what the Constitution says. Okay. Okay. To understand what the establishment clause means, we need to understand a word uh, called sacralism. Not sacred, but sacral. And uh, I'm going to take this definition from Wikipedia. I'm changing it a little bit. Uh, And there's probably better definitions, but uh, anyway... This is good enough for for today. Sacralism is the confluence of church and state. It denotes a perspective that views church and state as tied together instead of separate entities so that people within a geographic and political region are considered members of the dominant religious group. Now, sacralism um, was first... um, Established in Christianity when Constantine, who was emperor of Rome, decided that everybody in Rome was now going to be a Christian. And if you weren't a Christian, uh, you would be persecuted. So Constantine flipped things around. It used to be that the Romans would persecute the Christians because they were a non, you know, they they worshipped a multitude of gods. Uh, Zeus and Jupiter, and you, you've heard of Greek gods and Roman gods, and so uh, Constantine claimed that he was uh, converted, and uh, and he uh, so he took all the uh, the idol temples and he made them into churches, and he he basically said everybody's got to be baptized. And everybody's got to become a Christian. So what what happened is that the true Christians had to go underground because um, because Constantine changed everything when he established the Catholic Church. He est- he he changed everything. So he changed the way the meaning of communion. He changed uh, uh, just uh, you know I, I don't have time to go into all the things he did. But anyway, that was the first. Christian, sacralist uh, religion. And so that carried down so you had the Church of England. And there were wars in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, the queen, uh, one queen in England, I think maybe Anne, I don't remember, she, she was a Catholic. So she made everybody in England become Catholics. And if you weren't a Catholic in England, then you were persecuted. And then the king after him, he was a Protestant, and, and he's, he started driving all the Catholics out of England and persecuting the Catholics, and he wanted everybody to be a Protestant. And King James, who wrote the King James Bible, he was a Protestant. And and so there was the Church of England, and everybody in England was supposed to be a member of the Church of England. And so when the Constitution was was Written the U.S. Constitution, they said no. The the state will not establish a religion that everybody has to be belong to. Um, the The Constitution was built on Christian principles. There was never uh, any idea that America wouldn't be a Christian nation. They just didn't want the Church of everybody to belong to the Church of England, or everybody to be a Presbyterian, or everybody to be An Episcopal, they wanted everybody to be able to be free and to choose their own religious affiliation. And so that was... um, But sacralism destroys religious freedom. So uh, we rightly honor uh, Luther because he was the author of the uh, Reformation. But what a lot of... uh, what you don't read a lot, you don't hear a lot about, is how Luther was persecuting the Anabaptists. And the reason that Luther was uh, persecuting the Anabaptists is because he had a sacralist worldview. He believed that the government of Germany and should no longer be supporting the Catholic Church, they should be supporting the Protestant Reformation. And so... Luther had a sacralist point of view. The church and the state, the everybody in Germany should be a Protestant now. Well, the underground church that had been underground through the Catholics, they didn't agree with some of the things Luther wanted to do. Luther said, uh, okay, because he's, he's got a sacralist mindset, everybody in the town of Wasilla... Is, is now a Lutheran. It doesn't matter if you're saved or not. You belong to the Lutheran church. And the Anabaptists said, no, you're not a member of the church unless you're saved. You have to be born again to be a member of the church. And so Luther started persecuting, not Luther himself, He Luther gave permission to the state to persecute the Anabaptists. And Luther just turned a blind eye to it, and so you don't hear about that. But that's the uh, that's the uh, the legacy of sacralism. Now in America we don't have sacralism, but we have something that's very similar. See, sacralism sugarcoats the gospel. Luther was saying everybody in the town of Wasilla is now. No longer Catholic, they're all Protestant, and so um, the Anabaptists said, "No, that's not right. If you're a member, only the Born Again people are members of the church." Luther was saying, "No, everybody in the town's a member of the church," and so the Anabaptists didn't want to go to the the Methodist church. So Luther said, "Okay, well, persecute them." Force them to come to the Lutheran Church, and that's basically what happened and you don't hear about that, but anyway, okay, so um, so the U.S Constitution was basically opposing sacralism. We didn't want in America, I say, I say we, the founding fathers, did not want the state to tell everybody what church they were going to belong to. And uh, praise God for that. Okay, so um, let's look at a couple scriptures. Galatians 5.11 So we're going to look at what is the root of Sacralism. What is the root of compromising our faith to make it acceptable to say that crosses really aren't a religious symbol so that uh, they can continue to be on public land? What is the root of that kind of uh, compromise that Christians tend to have? So we're going to look at two scriptures. Galatians 5.11 Now brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Well, back in the New Testament times, um, the Jews that didn't accept Paul's message and didn't accept the other apostles' message that Jesus was the Messiah and that he came to deliver them from their sinful nature and that they needed to repent of their sins, Um, the Jews said, no, you don't have to follow Jesus. You just have to follow Moses. And if you're circumcised, you're going to go to heaven because we're God's chosen people. And the church does the same thing today. If you're baptized as a baby, that's what the Lutherans taught. That's something Martin Luther taught. If you're baptized as a baby, you're going to go to heaven because you're baptized. Well, the Anabaptists said, no, that's wrong. You have to, as a a mature thinking person, repent of your sins and then be baptized. Baptism is a sign of your repentance. It's your repentance and your acceptance of Jesus as Lord that gives you a ticket to heaven, not being baptized as an infant. And so, um, but it says here that the cross is offensive. You know, when when the Lord speaks to my heart and says, hey, there's that brother uh, right there standing next to you in the store. And, you know, just strike up a conversation with him and let him know that God loves you. You know, well, the cross is offensive. And uh, my natural uh, inclination is to just say, um, hey, God bless you, instead of saying, hey, did you know that Jesus um, died on the cross to save you? Of course, you wouldn't say that the first sentence, but, you know, there's an offense to the cross. And my flesh doesn't like being offended. And I have to allow the Holy Spirit to uh, overcome my hesitation to preach the gospel. Does that make sense? Am I the only one that tries to sugarcoat my walk with God? Hey, I'm just uh, yeah. Hey, it's a good day. Well, why is it good? It's good because Jesus loves me. You know, and uh, it's a natural tendency for all of us to avoid the offense of the cross. That's what the Christians have done over and over and over again trying to get around this idea of the separation of church and state. Well, that's not in the Constitution. And it's a false narrative. And um, my um, purpose in standing up here today is to get us to see that the gospel is offensive and, and just deal with it. The Bible says we need to die daily. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And so don't be a sugar-coated Christian, okay? And when you got sugar-coating on you, ask the Holy Spirit to peel it away, to dissolve it, to wash it away. To cleanse you. Let the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you. Let the word of God um, flow over you so that you're not a sugar-coated Christian, okay? Like I said, that's not a phrase I've ever read anywhere. It's something I made up. Um, but I think it applies. Okay, Revelation 18:4. Revelation 18:4. Thank you, Lord. I heard another voice from heaven. Now, John the Apostle was, uh, he was in a vision, and um, God was downloading um, revelation to him. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So apparently the people of God need to be exhorted to come out of the world system that they are in. We are no longer, uh, we are still citizens of this world, but we're no longer of this world. We're citizens of heaven. And the Holy Spirit here in Revelation is saying to us, come out of her. And this is talking about the end times. Do you know, I wasn't going to mention this, but do you know in the book of Revelation, it says a third of the waters, uh, a third of the ocean will be dead, and um, a third of the rivers will be turned to blood. Do you, do you know that um, because of these floods in the Midwest, The uh, dead zone in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico is the largest it's ever been because of all the runoff of pollution from Chicago and and from the farms. And there's a big, huge dead zone. Do you know that uh, there's microscopic bits of plastic down in the deepest currents of the ocean And the the plankton and all those things are eating this plastic. And then the tuna fish are eating the plankton and and all of this stuff. And um, do you know that they took uh, samples of bottled water? Bottled water is supposed to be pure water, right? They took samples of bottled water from like 50 different countries. you know, the best quality bottled water in all these countries, and 47 out of these 50 bottles or something like that, I don't remember the exact figure, had microscopic bits of plastic in them. And this, uh, you know, the Bible says that in the end times, there's going to be all kinds of massive destruction. So, deal with it the joy of the lord is your strength right we need to be responsible for for you know the pollution we're making we we need to do our best job to to be stewards of the earth that god created for our benefit amen but don't don't lose sight of the fact that we're on this earth the bible says go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. It doesn't say, go into all the world and clean up the mess everybody else made. Well, we need to do that, but that's not the primary uh, task that the Lord has given us. The primary task is to love one another. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? And so, But in Revelation it says, come out of Babylon. The world is a Babylon system. It hates God. And we should have nothing to do with hating God and agreeing with those who hate God, except to agree with them that they need to be saved. Okay, so, okay now, the Old Testament, Israel was a sacralist society created by God. So, in Israel, everybody belonged to the Jewish faith. So, Israel was a sacralist society. There's other sacralist societies in the world today. So, Muslim uh, countries, especially those that have Sharia law, they are sacralist. If you, uh, you know, in Iran, there's great revival in Iran right now, but in Iran, you can be murdered and imprisoned if if you become a Christian because everybody in Iran is supposed to be a Muslim. The same in Saudi Arabia, the same in Sudan, the same in a lot of different Muslim countries. It's the same in Myanmar. I was in Myanmar last year, and, uh, you know, they're persecuting the Rohingya uh, Muslims because they're not Buddhist. And they, they persecute the Karen... Uh, people and a lot of other minorities in Myanmar because they're not Buddhist. Because the the the, the people in Myanmar, the government in Myanmar, says if you're not a Buddhist, you're 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 dispensable. And so these are sacralist societies in our day. But Israel was a sacralist society, but it was never meant for the church to be sacralist. And so. Uh, Let's look at that. So turn to 1 Peter 2, 9-11. to Israel was a sacralist society. God established it that way. He brought the Ten Commandments down to Moses. They had worship in the wilderness for 40 years, even though they were worshiping their idols all that time. God... Had established the method of worship, to worship the true God, and because they wouldn't obey, God had to destroy that generation. And that's an interesting word, obey, because God expects Christians to obey. Uh, We're not 100% able to obey, so there's grace. But our heart attitude is, I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Israel was a sacralist society, but it was never meant for the church to be that way. So 1 Peter 2, 9-11. But you, and he's speaking to every one of us, our chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, I think the King James says peculiar people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. See, we've been called out of the world system. We're not to be identified with it. We're not to be, uh, you know, so the Church of England, everybody and the Church of England belonged to the state of England. Uh, the, the state and the, the, the people, the religion, were the same, but we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends... I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Do you know, I'll go back to Luther. Do you know that in the Lutheran church in his day, it didn't matter if you were saved. You were a member of the Lutheran church. It didn't matter if you were saved. So if you're not saved, what does that mean? It means you're a sinner, right? So you can be a member of the Lutheran church and be a sinner. That's what it means if you're not saved, right, darling. And so all kinds of things would be going on in the church, but uh, you were okay. Nothing wrong with you. Because that was the state religion. But the Anabaptists who said, no, you have to be born again and you have to... Uh, love the Lord, and you have to, um, and you ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They were persecuted. Thousands of them were killed. Thousands and thousands and thousands over several hundred years. The 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 the, the wars uh, in in Europe. Because they belonged to a different, they didn't belong to the organization. But see, Jesus, um, another reason why uh, the church could never be a sacralist society is you have people from every nation and tongue and tribe as members of the church. So somebody in uh, Tanzania, I'm thinking about Tanzania, um, so let me tell you a little bit about Tanzania. Tanzania is in East Africa. Uh, so Pastor Paul, I'm in, uh, in the Philippines, um, in, uh, late March. He says, Brother Bob, um, uh, I want you to c- come with us to uh, Tanzania next spring. We're going to start a church. And, uh. We have a couple, a a Filipino couple that's been there for some years. They're workers, and they want to start a church. So I've been invited to go to Tanzania for three weeks next March. So the brothers and sisters in Tanzania, uh, you can't expect them to be members of the Church of America. They, they're, they're not even. They, they're not. They're a totally different culture. And uh, do you know if you, if you're in Tanzania and you, and you meet somebody, hello. Uh, my name's Bob. Do you know that uh, you're expected to spend at least five minutes in the greeting? How's your wife? How's your kids? how's your How's your parents doing um, It's not just hello and if you just say hello and goodbye, that's like an insult so it's a different culture, so how can the church be uh all one culture it can't Church is multifaceted multicultural amen and so um A sugar-coated Christian always tries to blend into the larger society. So we see churches in America that uh, they allow gays to be ministers, uh, and there's other churches. Oh, so the pastor had an extramarital re- uh, affair. Oh, that's okay. He's the pastor. Uh, that that's acceptable. Uh, it's you know that's people do that. Uh, Those are forms of sugarcoating the gospel. And uh, I won't go into more examples, but you get the idea. Uh, Christians are apt to just sugarcoat the gospel. And then I wrote here. Okay, so we're called to be salt and light. But when you take salt and cover it with sugar. It just isn't salt anymore. We're meant to be salt and light. So don't take the salt that you are and cover it with with a veneer of sugar, okay? Don't try to make it less than what it is. The gospel is offensive. Why? Because people need to remit their sinners. Oh, I thought I was the center of the universe. No, Jesus, He's a sinner and the Father. And He created you to love Him. But you're not loving Him. So you got a problem. Whoa, that's offensive. Yeah, it is. But that's the gospel. It was so offensive that they crucified Jesus. And He said, if they crucify me, uh, What are they going to do to you?